This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. So welcome, glad you all could be here tonight um, for the last lecture of our winter term. Um, our next lecture will be sometime in May, so look at our website. Eventually that schedule will be posted, um, but yeah, we're going on a bit of break for Easter and other other things, and so come back in May. Um, yeah, so tonight, this lecture obviously is called Kindred Spirits Reading for Friendship's Sake, and I deliberately phrased that as a question, partly because when I wrote the title, I didn't know what I was going to talk about, and um, partly because uh, I'm going to lay out some things on the table, on the table, um, and I hope we can have a good discussion about this uh, at the end as well. Um, so to begin, when, um, when I was in grad school, where I studied English and a lot of it was literature, I had a professor who encouraged us to ask of whatever we were reading. Um, He actually, this this very academic question, what's with fill in the blank? (laughs) Um, So we ended up asking, you know, what's with this character always looking out windows? Or what's with the repeated use of military metaphors in this story? Or uh, why are there keys all over the place? Things like that. Um, But... This phrase, I think he got annoyed how much we started asking, what's with this in the story? And so this topic uh, came came about, this lecture came about in many ways because I asked this question. What's with the current explosion of what I'm going to be calling, for now, bookish lit? Bookish lit. So... Um, you may have heard, I mean, there's different publishers use different language to talk about different genres of literature. This is not one that I know of that publishers are using. Um, I don't know. Maybe I should trademark it. Um, but what I've started noticing, and what I'm going to describe for you, is this sort of subgenre um, called bookish lit. Sometimes I call it bookish chick lit, but chick lit is a bit of a fraught term. It can be seen as like, feminists don't like it. Like, I don't know. There's a whole thing. We can talk about that in discussion if you want to know more. There's a great Wikipedia page about it. Um, but anyway, um, bookish lit is a subgenre of novels that are primarily written for women and marketed towards women. They don't have to be, but that's how they're marketed. I mean, they look like this. They're like swirly fonts, or they look like this. Usually, like, it's pretty obvious who they're marketed towards, but, you know, I don't want to be sexist. Anyone is welcome to pick them up. Um, They often, very often, uh, have a romance novel style. Uh, If they're not a full-on romance novel, they might have a bent towards that. Um, 
But here are some of the, the hallmarks of, of what I'm describing. So they always involve a book place, like, <laughs> like a library or a bookstore, generally. Uh, I mean, this could be called bookshop lit. Uh, you're like you're thinking about you're you're thinking of titles probably now if you at all look at book related things, um, and so reading and book places like a library bookstore are key to the plot, key setting, key thing that happens. Um, so let me just give you a sense. So this was just a quick list through my local library catalog and. And Amazon, you know, the Amazon algorithm saying, like, if you liked this, you like this. So here's some here's some titles. The Bookshop, The Boardwalk Bookshop, The Bookshop on the Corner, The Bookshop of Yesterdays, The Bookshop of the Brokenhearted, The Lost and Found Bookshop, The Little Paris Bookshop, The Last Bookshop in London, The English Bookshop, The Bookshop of Yesterdays, The Bookshop of Second Chances, The Printed Letter Bookshop, The Forgotten Bookshop in Paris, The Bookshop of Forgotten Dreams, The House Above the Bookshop, Forthcoming... Uh, being translated from the Japanese, coming this summer, Days at the Morisaki Bookshop, <laughs> The Lost for Words Bookshop, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookshop, <laughs> The Little Bookshop on the Seine, The Paris Library, The Last Chance Library, The Library of Lost and Found, The Library of Lost Things, The Library at the Edge of the World, The Personal Librarian, The Librarian of Burned Books, The Librarian of St. Malo, The Librarian Spy, <laughs> the book charmer, bookish people, uh, this one, the readers of Broken Wheel recommend, the messy lives of book people, uh, one of the, the originals, one of the OGs, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society actually is um, maybe kind of one of the founding, founding books in this genre, um, the Secret Book and Scone Society, that's a series. Um, <laughs> the Storied Life of A.J. Fickery, The Bookish Life of Nina Hill, The Reading List, and two, to not be confused, The Book Lover and Book Lovers. <laughs> um, and that's, that's books that, that obviously have like book or reading or library in the title. Uh, there's also, I just discovered today, this guy named Charlie Lovett who writes several, has several mysteries that fall into this genre called The Bookman's Tale, First Impressions, and The Lost Book of the Grail, which I think tend toward more mystery and adventure. So if that's kind of more the, the way you want to go, those are also available. So anyway, this is obviously a huge list. Definitely have not read most of those books. Um, I did judge them by their covers, by their cover matter. Um, so so I think there's, and there's, there's, so there's a spectrum here. There's, uh, a spectrum from what might be called more literary novels all the way to um, pretty candy floss, romance, beach read, whatever you want to call them, uh, novels that are primarily written for the plot, not for the language. Uh, if that's a way to distinguish, like literary fiction tends to focus on the language. These other novels are just, get, get me the story. Um, so this is obviously quite a list. Um, and most of these have been published in the last few years. The, uh, the Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Pie Society is from 2009. Um, but then most of what I read, and some of them are, are forthcoming, like I said. Um, so they all invi- involve this bookish place. What they also tend to include is a kind of sto- a stock character, a lonely and or a sad person, or two. Um, <laughs> And so uh, this is often like a shy, lonely, bookish person. Maybe they need some 
healing from past trauma or tragedy or dark secret of some kind. Um, often their only real friends are books until, until something happens that requires real life community to, to break into their life. Or another version of this is there's a non-bookish, lonely, sad person who never reads because they're stoic and hardworking and I don't know, whatever. Um, but there's, and their sad life is interrupted by a bookish person who tries to convince them that reading will turn their life around. <laughs> so there's lots of variations on this theme, but a key ingredient is that there's a lonely person and community breaks in in some way and it involves reading in some way. Um, and very often this real in-person in -person community will involve people of different ages. Um, there's very quirky characters get involved. Um, it'll often depend on people getting into each other's business, being really nosy and meddlesome potentially. Um, in this one, the main character is from Sweden and her the people who've like adopted her in this small town decide they want to try and get her to stay, but she's on a tourist visa, so they like arrange her marriage with this other guy in the town who is not interested in marrying her. It's great. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole thing. Um, anyway, meddlesome and nosy people. And then it also tends to revolve around, the plot tends to involve, maybe not revolve around, that the community forms around some kind of a shared purpose, which very often... Uh, includes romance. Um, that's usually one of the one of the people in the community is a love interest to the main character. Um, but the the shared purpose is usually a purpose of preservation or establishment, usually of a bookish place. Um, so we need to save the library, save the bookstore because big bad developer is coming in or something. Or this town doesn't have a library, doesn't have a bookstore, and this is obviously what it needs. Um, and so this is sounding familiar, right? You, there's show, there's TVs, shows like this, there's movies like this. I mean, You've Got Mail is maybe like one of the original like yeah. bookstore stories. Um, so I just yeah. So but these are some of the key features of this of this subgenre. Um, yeah. To make this like just hammer this home, um, this is the the cover matter of the Last Chance Library by Freya Sampson. And this is like almost a perfect specimen of this genre. Everything, you know, books are different. They, they have different things going on, but this is almost a perfect specimen. Lonely librarian June Jones has never left the sleepy English village where she grew up. Shy and reclusive, the 28-year-old, they're also 28 all the time. <laughs> um, this, the 28-year-old would rather spend her time buried in books than venture out into the world. But when her library is threatened with closure, June is forced to step out from behind the shelves to save the heart of her community and the place that holds the dearest memories of her mother. Joining a band of eccentric yet dedicated locals in a campaign to keep the library, June opens herself up to people for the first time since her mother died. To rescue the place and the books that mean so much to her, June must finally make some changes in her life. And maybe in fighting for her cherished library, June can save herself too. Okay, that's like gold right there. That's like perfect textbook, bookish lit. Um, but other ones that maybe are totally different in terms of setting, time period, uh, have similar sorts of things. So the Lost and Found bookshop, here's just a line. Natalie takes over the bookshop reluctantly, but finds that books provide welcome solace for her overwhelming grief. Um, and then an endorsement for the bookshop of the brokenhearted. 
Beautifully written, gentle-spirited, and wise, The Bookshop of the Brokenhearted reminds each of us that love, literature, and forgiveness have the power to transform our lives and, if we dare allow them, to mend our broken hearts. One more example. This is from this one, the little Paris bookshop, which is... The interesting thing is that this is also like an international phenomenon. Um, This one's translated from Swedish. This one's translated from French. Um... So uh, in, the, in this one, the main character, uh, Monsieur Perdu, he owns a bookshop on a barge that floats on the Seine, and um, he describes himself as a book apothecary who prescribes books to people when they, they bring their problems to him, and he prescribes books to help cure their ills. It's actually quite, there's a really beautiful bit in the beginning uh, where he diagnoses this woman who's heartbroken and angry at the world. And what he eventually tells her <laughs> is what you read is more important in the long term than the man you marry, ma chère madame. <laughs> so um, so my study of this genre is still in its infancy, um, but a lot of these books seem to, and this is another feature of the genre, I think, they seem to bank pretty heavily on nostalgia. Um, some of them are historical fiction to begin with, Others tend to be about small towns, or if they are about London or Paris, it's an old world city where there are kind of the ability, there's the ability to have these discrete idiosyncratic neighborhoods or apartment buildings or like communal spaces. Um, and they, they sort of, even if they don't say this, there's like this feeling around them that that sort of evokes this kind of thought. If only in the face of e-readers and dying bookstores, we could go back to a simpler time when neighbors actually knew each other, people actually read paper books, communities did business together. There, if only there would be somebody who would pick up my stack of books that I drop when I trip on the sidewalk because everyone is walking in this neighborhood. No one's driving by in suburbia or something. Um, so there's there's just a lot of that sort of a nostalgic feeling. These are very much like feel-good books. Um, some of them aren't, and that's interesting, and I'm not going to get into that But um, right now. But in general, there's sort of this cozy, nostalgic feeling. And they also center, like I said already, around this idea of preservation, which I think is important. Um, They assume explicitly or implicitly, usually very often there's explicit dialogue between characters or just someone thinking or whatever, narration, about certain assumptions, which, which are these. Books bring people together. Books will heal loneliness and grief. Reading is deeply important and good. Reading is formative for people personally and culturally. And the books, books themselves and the places that hold them, so the physical material of books and their places, are valuable and life-giving and maybe even, I would venture to say, salvific, able to save individuals and communities. I mean, in the, in the blurb about June Jones, it says maybe in fighting for her cherished library, June can save herself too. Mm-hmm. So this might this might just sound like fantasy, like okay, these are just fluffy little um, opiates for the masses that <laughs> involve nostalgia and feeling cozy, and um, you know, just allow us to escape from the technological realities of our day or whatever. But I want to ask that question: Is this just a nostalgia trip? Um, why 
Why are there so many of these books? What is with this explosion of this genre? And I think there's more to it than the, that this is just the latest craze in, craze in fiction for millennial women. Um, and I th- uh, the thing that I want to start with in starting to answer that question is to look at the very serious and real issue that most of these novels start with. Um, is and, and that's the reality of deep and pervasive loneliness in our in our cultures. Um, so uh, this you definitely can't see it, but this is a little classified ad that shows up in our community newspaper every week, as far as I can tell. And it says, "Need a message of hope? Twenty four hours every day. Call dial a friend." Now that might be super sketchy, but I think it also points to a problem. Like if we're in a position where we could call a phone number, we're so lonely that we would call a phone number of an unknown person that we found in the newspaper. That's pretty lonely. And you've probably heard discussions and conversation about an epidemic of loneliness over the last four, uh, last more than four years, um, back, back, you know, eight, 10 years even. Um, it's been really well discussed, I think. In 2017, the then Surgeon General of the U.S., Dr. Vivek Murthy, Murthy, that's probably how you say that, he wrote an article describing loneliness as a public health concern. You've probably heard this kind of conversation about loneliness. Uh, since 2018, the U.K. government has had a minister of loneliness, and since 2021, so has Japan. So these are government positions designed to tackle this epidemic of loneliness in their cultures. Um, If you search friendship in our Liberty Lecture database, you'll see a number of of lectures, uh, which I think interesting, the most recent of of them coincides with Dr. Murthy's diagnosis in 2017. It's been a little while. I think we're due for a new friendship lecture. That's also why I'm here. But, um, But I think it's interesting that those coincide. And, um, a lot of my colleagues, when they gave those lectures, um, they're definitely responding to a perceived problem, some kind of a crisis of friendship as well as a crisis of loneliness. Um, a, a number of things that they bring up as issues are that social media is insufficient for real connection. I think that's something... Uh, that in a lot of ways has been taken, has started being taken for granted in a lot of, in a lot of ways. At that time, you know, in 2017, before that, Facebook was kind of in its heyday. Um, yeah, so that's an important thing that, that the, those lectures were addressing. Social media is not going to be where you make your best friends. A Facebook friend is not the same as a in-person friend. Another thing that these lectures bring up is that um, in both, secular society and Christian society, romantic relationships is privileged as the ultimate goal. Um, so, yeah, romantic love is seen as the, the paragon, the, like, ultimate achievement. Um, and that, in turn, devalues so-called platonic friendships. It's not my favorite term, but, um, yeah, causes uh, friendship to be viewed as less valuable and um, potentially even as optional and, and disposable than as a result. And a, a number of these lectures are do, uh, dealing with this book by Wesley Hill called Spiritual Friendship, which came out in 2015. 
some of them are like book reviews of it. So if you're interested in more about this, I'm just letting you know that those lectures are out there. Um, and this book I do highly recommend along with, with them. Um, and in this book, uh, Wesley Hill talks about a problem, the problem with the way we as a culture, Christians and non-Christians, view friendship. Um, because friendship is, of all the loves, the most free, the most voluntary, um, it is, therefore, he says, the most fragile. He writes, unlike romantic relationships or bonds between siblings, friendship is entirely voluntary, uncoerced, and unencumbered by any sense of duty or debt. And friendship is thereby rendered special, mysterious, and deeply rewarding. But it's also seen as optional. Um, you can't choose your siblings or your parents. You're bound to them by biology. Um, and so it, so friendship is different. It, it can be seen as optional, as unnecessary for survival, um, and therefore it's, it's under, undervalued. And I think this is illustrated in the fact that we spend a lot of time, a lot of time learning how to be good students, uh, which we're told is to train us to be good employees. Um, people often spend a lot of time learning to be good spouses, good parents, even good children, um, learning how to live well within the relationships that we are bound to by contract or by biology. But we don't give as much attention to learning how to be good friends. Um, I think instead, like I said before, as a culture, we tend to pour most of our attention and our effort into finding and maintaining uh, romantic love. Um, yeah, so I won't go into his whole argument. I, I would say just read the book if you're interested in that. But Hill calls this privileging of romantic love and this nonchalant attitude towards friendship into question. And he shows uh, he shows how those attitudes are actually can be really destructive, both to romantic love, but um, also just to people, and can perpetuate loneliness, especially for people who are single, but not exclusively. Um, and I think I think these this sort of uh, these combined attitudes are part of why we are in this crisis of friendship and loneliness that that we're a part of. Um, just to okay, yeah. Um, this uh, experience of loneliness is not just limited to intro- introverted people or single people. <laughs> um, this book, Find Your People, by Jenny Allen, just came out last year. And uh, Jenny Allen is, she's a wife, she's a mom, she's a women's ministry eater, uh, leader, and she's obviously and admittedly very extroverted. Um, but she describes her own struggle with feeling connected with people, and she lists some scenarios that I think are helpful in in just thinking through um, what this sense of isolation looks like for us in different ways, different people in different ways. Um, She gives just some scenarios that I think are helpful. For example, you you don't know who to call to pick you up at the airport. You have something to celebrate or grieve and no one to celebrate or grieve with. You have an idea you want to brainstorm and can't think of anyone who would care enough to dream with you. You're dealing with a difficult situation at work, but can't think of anyone safe you can talk it through with. Most of your friend group is married and starting to have kids, and you aren't even dating. Your kids are grown, and you are single and spend most of your time alone. You are eating another meal alone again. 
You are looking at the weekend and don't have a single plan. Unless you initiate or go it alone, you won't have anything to do. You're talking to someone you thought was a good friend, but you realize you are on completely different pages about important issues. Your family is broken and unhealthy when it when it seems like everyone else is excited to be going home to see their normal, happy, well-adjusted families at Christmas. <laughs> you need to talk, but you don't know who to call. You haven't had anyone genuinely listen to you in so long that you honestly can't remember the last time you opened up. She goes on to say, These scenes strike at the quiet ache I'm talking about. It's just an inescapable reality of the human condition, right? Isn't it just something we all face? Or is it just me? Or is it just you? And I think that last question is maybe one of the most poignant because that feeling that you're alone and feeling alone is maybe one of the worst parts of being lonely. Um, I think... I mean, I could hear some hmms in the audience. It sounds like some of those things maybe struck a chord. Um, and on top of all that, obviously, the pandemic didn't do anything to help. Um, in 2020, kind of ironically, just as the nation was isolating because of COVID, uh, Vivek Murthy published a book called Together, um, which was about the, like, well, based on his research he'd been doing, you know, since 2017, about the importance of human connection and ways to com- combat that isolation and to build relationships. And in an interview about the book, soon after its release, when he was asked about the potential effects of uh, lockdown-imposed isolation, this is what he said. He said, I think this could take us down one of two paths. One path is the worrisome one marked by greater loneliness as we spend more and more time physically separated from one another. But the other path is the path of social revival. If we recommit to people and to relationships, we have the opportunity to use this moment to recenter our lives on people. And if we do that, then I believe we can come out of this pandemic more connected, more fulfilled, and more resilient than before the pandemic began. So, 2023, which path? have we taken um in an article in his column for the atlantic from january of this year arthur brooks says it doesn't look like we've taken the path of social revival um he looks at a lot of different surveys that have been done over the last year and uh says this instead of coming together in the wake of shared trauma emerging evidence suggests that we are in the midst of a long-term crisis of habitual loneliness in which relationships were severed and never reestablished. And he cites, like I said, different studies. One of them is from the spring of 2022. And in this survey, most respondents said they found it harder to form relationships now, and a quarter of respondents felt anxious about socializing. And the biggest source of anxiety was not fear of getting COVID. The biggest source of anxiety shared by 29% was not knowing what to say or how to interact. So Brooks concludes this way. He says, or concludes his survey of the data anyway, doesn't conclude his article, Um, concludes his survey saying, many of us have simply forgotten how to be friends. Many of us have simply forgotten how to be friends. So how do we remember? How do we remember how to be friends? When we think about friendship, I don't know if um, books is what we immediately think of. Um, 
I'm a pretty bookish person and that's not what I immediately think of. But very often, people um, who love reading talk about reading with the same kind of language that we would talk about relationships with. Um, I mean, even just what I referenced from Monsieur Perdue, he says, what you read is more important in the long term than the man you marry. Uh, but more seriously than that, there's, there's a pretty illustrious and diverse across time crew of people who've talked about books as friends. And I'm just going to give you kind of a few that I just picked up sort of randomly. Um, there's lots more I could have referenced. Um, this is Wayne Booth, who was a professor of literature at the University of Chicago, and he wrote a lot of kind of seminal works on fiction, uh, on, on the analysis of fiction, how fiction works. Um, and he wrote a book that was an ethics of fiction. That's the subtitle, but the title of it is The Company We Keep. The Company We Keep and Ethics of Fiction. So he's already kind of just with the title starting with thinking about books as people, as company that we might spend time with. Um, and in his in his book, he references lots of different people, obviously, uh, who who talked about books. And a couple are were just interesting quotations to me. One of them is this guy. Everybody recognize him? Yeah. No. Uh, he's an early 19th century uh, essayist, painter, writer, person, William Hazlitt, and he says he wrote this about reading. With a few old authors, I can manage to get through the summer or winter months without ever knowing what it is to feel ennui. They sit with me at breakfast, they walk with me before dinner, and at night, by the blazing hearth, discourse the silent hours away. Um, Around the same place, Booth also quotes from Machiavelli, Niccolò Machiavelli who's famous for other things than um, than reading, but he did read a lot, and this is how he talks about that. He says, When evening has arrived, I return home and go into my study. I pass into the antique courts of ancient men, where, welcomed lovingly by them, I feed upon the food which is my own and for which I was born. Just another another example. This is... Uh, Oswald Chambers, who is a really well-known evangelist and preacher about 100 years ago. Um, my utmost for his highest is what he's most well-known for, his, his words compiled by his wife. Um, this is what he wrote uh, to a friend about, about reading. My books, I cannot tell you what they are to me, silent, wealthy, loyal lovers. To look at them, to handle them, and to reread them. I do thank God for my books with every fiber of my being, friends that are ever true and ever your own. Um, and then another person, this is Marilyn Robinson, who's a contemporary author and essayist, uh, novelist and essayist, and um, she wrote an essay called Community, uh, Imagination and Community, which is in a collection of essays called When I Was a Child, I Read Books. And this is what she says uh, about some of her experience reading. She says, So I belong to the community of the written word in several ways. First, books have taught me most of what I know, and they have trained my attention and my imagination. Second, they gave me a sense of the possible, which is the great service, and too often, when it is ungenerous, the great disservice a community performs for its members. 
Third, they embodied a richness and refinement of language and the artful use of language in the service of the imagination. Fourth, they gave me and still give me courage. So there's a lot, a lot we could talk about within these quotations, but what I think relates most to our topic of friendship here, this question of combating loneliness, is this. These authors, and there's many more that could join the the group up here, um, obviously spent and spend a lot of time reading in enjoying the company of books. And mostly, they do this alone. I mean, especially Hazlitt and Machiavelli talk about kind of like hiding away, like going in your secret room and reading, waiting for that moment, that chance to get away and and read. This is their alone time. Um, and as I've been working on this topic, uh, this, this drew to mind a, a blog post that I had read from just a few months ago by this uh, Christian blogger and author named Laura Wilbert. Um, she wrote this post called Ending the Crisis of Loneliness One Person at a Time. Um, and one of the things that she said, this just really reminded me of it, um, or just came to mind. She says, sometimes the cure for loneliness is not to be with another. It's to learn to be alone. Um, and she tries to give some really practical tips on how to do this. She talks about just maybe being still and being silent, kind of what Joshua talked a little bit about in his last lecture, um, spending time with God. She talks about getting off, getting off social media. But she also says, hey, learn or rediscover a hobby. Um, so all of these things are, are ways to learn to be alone. And I think in a deep way, that's what these really great writers who have befriended books, who befriended books, that's what they were doing or what they are doing. Um, though, though for them, spending time with great books is a lot more than just a hobby. Um, what they're doing is learning to be alone without being lonely. These people cultivated their solitude so that that time became quality time. Time inhabited in the company of rich, wealthy, Chambers says, wealthy companions. So we all have times when we're alone, but what is the quality of that loneliness? That's the, of that aloneness, rather. Um, Do we just fill the silence with noise? Do we just constantly entertain ourselves? Do we languish in boredom? Do we curl up into our feelings of loneliness and feel like we can never never get out? <clears throat> in her book, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about in a second, but in her book on reading well, Karen Swallow Pryor says this. She says, reading well adds to our life, not in the way a tool from the hardware store adds to our life, for a tool does no good once lost or broken, but in the way a friendship adds to our life, altering us forever. So like I already mentioned, a few weeks ago when Joshua talked about Bonhoeffer's life together, um, he, he brought up this, this place where Bonhoeffer talks about... Um, about coming to times of solitude with the strength of the community and coming to the community with the strength of our solitude. Um, what is the quality of our solitude? I think, I think that by spending at least some of our alone time in the company of good books, 
we aren't just necessarily fill, filling the silence with noise. We actually have an opportunity to let these paper friends, these paper friends, strengthen us for the work of community. Um, I I actually think that time with our paper friends, if we approach it intentionally and well, can help us remember to be friends when we're not alone. Um, so, sort of just to recap, thinking, let's think a little bit about reading to cultivate our solitude. But I think there's another step here as well. <clears throat> so, C.S. Lewis famously did not say, <laughs> did not say we read to know we're not alone. Um, you'll see that attributed to him all over the place. It's the character of C.S. Lewis in the movie Shadowlands who says that, not Lewis himself in anything that anyone has found uh, of his actual writings or recordings. <clears throat> um, that's a nice, it's a really nice quote, but he didn't say it. Um, <laughs> what he did write in his book, uh, An Experiment in Criticism, is this. And it's a little bit tricky, so I'll put it up here for you. He wrote this. The primary impulse for each person is to maintain and aggrandize himself. The secondary impulse is to go out of the self, to correct its provincialism and heal its loneliness. In love, in virtue, in the pursuit of knowledge, and in the reception of the arts, we are doing this. We are going out of the self. Um, or at least potentially doing this. Um, so, basically, I think what Lewis is saying here is that... Um, Reading, which could actually be doing all, all four of these things, loving, ver- pursuing virtue, pursuing knowledge, receiving the arts, those things can all happen while reading. Um, but those things also happen outside of reading. Um, they're all similar in this way. They draw us out of ourselves. So my point here is that reading can, can be a way of cultivating our solitude so that rather than just it being a place of languishing, of mindless entertainment, of ennui, as uh, Hazlitt said, um, a place where where our friendship and community building muscles start to atrophy because we're not using them, it can actually become a place of personal growth and strength, I think. Um, and I think that reading itself can actually be a way of building those friendship and community building muscles that we do have. So I do think that reading can help us remember how to be friends. It could be one of the things that helps us remember. There's lots of things, but I think it's one of them. So in, in this book uh, on reading well, um, and in a, uh, something sort of similar, the subtitle of On Reading Well is Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Uh, and then this other more recent book called The Scandal of Holiness by Jessica Houghton Wilson. The subtitle of The Scandal of Holiness is Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. Both of these authors are making a really explicit connection between reading great books and virtue formation. Um, they're making it really explicit, and I encourage you to, to look at these if that's something that you're interested in, that the arguments for that. Um, so in, in Swallow Pryor's book, she goes through the 
traditional um, cardinal, theological, and heavenly virtues and talks about each one with a piece of literature that she thinks illustrates that virtue and characters that illustrate that virtue. Um, and then in, in this one, Hooten Wilson, she, she argues that we need models for holiness and that fiction is a legitimate place to find those models, that literary saints um, might actually be folks in whose, in, uh, in whose company we can become, become more virtuous. Um, we can talk more in the discussion about how that works if that's confusing, but um, we're going to take that, that premise for granted. And I want to illustrate this by looking at a character um, that I think, maybe surprisingly, I think she's a literary saint, um, quite an ordinary one, which is very comforting. Um, and, uh, and, it's, and it's a series of books that I think is really helpful in thinking about friendship. In children's literature, there's tons of books about friends. I'm sure you can think of so many. Um, Toot and Puddle, did that get read this term? That gets read a lot. Toot and Puddle, Frog and Toad, our famous friends, Wilbur and Charlotte, Mole, Rat, and Badger. Those are all animals. Um, (laughs) Harry, Ron, and Hermione, those aren't animals. Um, You know, you can think of lots of friends in children's books. And my title might have called another famous pair to mind, Anne and Diana from Anne of Green Gables. Um, So the first time that Anne meets her neighbor, uh, Diana, the very first time, she's about 11 years old, she's just moved to the neighborhood. The first time she meets her, Anne asks if Diana will swear to be her bosom friend forever and ever. (laughs) It's like almost the first thing she says to her. No beating around the bush. Um, and Diana agrees because she's glad that someone lives next door who to play with now. Um, she agrees, even though she admits, you're a queer girl, Anne, but I believe I'm going to like you real well. And they do become really dear friends. Um, but what I found really helpful in thinking about, uh, helpful about the Anne books when thinking about friendship is not so much her 11 year old friendship, um, but the friendship she forms as she grows up. So the series, you can see it there, it's, it's quite a few books. Um, as the series goes on, um, Anne and Diana actually, and, and quite realistically, I think, grow apart. They're not enemies or anything. They're still friends. Um, but their relationship changes quite a lot. When Anne goes off to college, she's pursuing academics. Um, she gets jobs different places because she's a teacher. Uh, that's when they leave school. Diana gets married right away and stays in Avonlea, soon has children. She just has a very different life than Anne. Um, and that's something I think a lot of us can probably relate to. Um, if we think about our childhood best friends, uh, we were we were real friends. Those relationships still maybe are really meaningful, but maybe life has taken us in different, in different directions, maybe to different places. Um, and so those relationships aren't the same as what they once were. So what we do see in the later books is the way that Anne makes friends as an adult. And I think making friends as adults is something that we need more models for. Um, I don't know about you all, but it's not that easy. (laughs) Um, So the first thing, excuse me, that I noticed about adult Anne is how much she loves people. Um, 
and I think this is an important this is an important reminder for me. I don't know about you, but um, Anne doesn't take people for granted. She is continuously surprised and delighted delighted by them. In Anne of Wendy Poplar's, she writes she writes to her fiance following this really humorous but potentially could have been really bad event with this family. She's trying to get to know the dad is like a total grump. Um, he, who like refuses to speak to people when he's grumpy, and so it's like a very awkward family dinner where the dad's like refusing to talk. Anyway, um, Anne saves the day. They all laugh about it later. After she's related this incident to her fiance, she says, "Gilbert, people are delicious, and life is delicious." <laughs> and that that makes me ask, what would my how would my relationships look different if um, if I approached everyone that way instead of (laughs) people are scary (laughs) or maybe contagious or annoying or take up too much time or loud or whatever it is fill in the blank what if what if we approached people with people are delicious and life is delicious um and unlike unlike a lot of the relationships um in the in the bookish lit books that i've talked about where um Friendship and romance sort of just happen sort of magically. There's sort of chance coincidences or things. There's there's meet cutes, kind of like you would see in a movie. Um, Anne makes friends in pretty commonplace ways through proximity because they she lives with them, so she makes friends with them, or they live down the road, so she makes friends with them. She works with them, um, or through through normal networks that we can recognize, like she's in a friend's wedding and the friend's sister is someone who she becomes friends with. Um, So it's true that she does sometimes have a friend at first sight moment um, in Anne's House of Dreams, the next next book after this one. Um, She meets her new neighbor, Captain Jim, and the narrator tells us this. Uh, the old captain held out a sinewy hand to Anne. They smiled at each other and were friends from that moment. Kindred spirit flashed recognition to kindred spirit. So sometimes that does happen. Sometimes that happens for us. Sometimes there's just someone you just click with. Um, but I think more often, uh, and, and maybe more powerfully because it is more often, making friends for us and making friends for Anne takes work and, and takes perseverance. So in, in this one, uh, Anne of Wendy Poplar's, um, Anne is appointed principal of this high school, and she's the head teacher, and she's in this new town. And basically, the whole book is about her making friends with everybody in this new, <laughs> in this new circle of acquaintances. And some of them are not very nice, um, especially her vice principal, who is a slightly older woman who really resents her for getting the position that she wanted. Um, uh, her name is Catherine, and she's just really nasty and sarcastic. Um, she doesn't seem to care for anybody, even herself. Like if her appearance or her lifestyle is any indication, it doesn't look like she cares about anything. And other people in the town warn Anne. They say no one can make friends with her. And Anne admits her manner is very repellent. So <laughs> I like that. I like that phrase. Um, but Anne doesn't give up. Uh, she writes to Gilbert. I really would give up trying to be friends with her if I hadn't a queer, unaccountable feeling that under all her brusqueness and aloofness, she is actually starved for companionship. 
So at the end of their first, they've been working together for a whole year. At the end of their first year working together, Anne says, I felt as if I ought to ask her to Green Gables for the summer holiday, but I just couldn't. She's such a killjoy. She'd spoil everything. (laughs) But when I think of her alone in that cheap boarding house all summer, my conscience gives me unpleasant jabs. (laughs) So after no, no encouragement from Catherine whatsoever, uh, but continuing jabs of conscience, and finally decides that she will invite Catherine to come to Christmas with her at home at Green Gables. Um, and I'm just going to read you this scene because it's kind of great. <laughs> so she's come into uh, Catherine's room in the boarding house. Oh, Miss Brooke, look at that sunset, said Anne rapturously from the squeaky, cushionless rocker to which Catherine had ungraciously pointed her. I've seen a good many sunsets, said the latter coldly without moving condescending to me with your sunsets she thought bitterly you haven't seen this one no two sunsets are alike just sit down here and let us let it sink into our souls said Anne thought Anne do you ever say anything pleasant (laughs) don't be ridiculous please the most insulting words in the world with an added edge of insult in Catherine's contemptuous tones Anne turned from her sunset and looked at Catherine much more than half inclined to get up and walk out. But Catherine's eyes looked a trifle strange. Had she been crying? Surely not. You couldn't imagine Catherine Book crying. You don't make me feel very welcome, Anne said slowly. I can't pretend things. I haven't your notable gift for doing the queen act, saying exactly the right thing to everyone. You're not welcome. What sort of a room is this to welcome anyone to? Catherine made a scornful gesture at the faded walls, the shabby bare chairs, and the wobbly dressing table with its petticoat of limp muslin. It isn't a nice nice room, but why do you stay here if you don't like it? Oh, why? Why? You wouldn't understand. It doesn't matter. I don't care what anybody thinks. What brought you here tonight? I don't suppose you came just to soak in the sunset. (laughs) I came to ask if you would spend the Christmas holidays with me at Green Gables. Now, thought Anne, for another broadside of sarcasm, I do wish wish she'd sit down at least. She just stands there as if she's waiting for me to go. (laughs) But there was silence for a moment. Then Catherine said slowly, Why do you ask me? It isn't because you like me. Even you couldn't pretend that. (laughs) (laughs) It's because I can't bear to think of any human being spending Christmas in a place like this, said Anne candidly. Sarcasm came then. Oh, I see. A seasonable outburst of charity. I'm hardly a candidate for that yet, Miss Shirley. Anne got up. She was out of patience with this strange, aloof creature. She walked across the room and looked Catherine squarely in the eye. Catherine Brooke, whether you know it or not, what you want is a good spanking. (laughs) They gazed at each other for a moment. It must have relieved you to say that said Catherine. (laughs) But somehow the insulting tone had gone out of her voice. There was even a faint twitch at the corner of her mouth. It has, said Anne. I've been wanting to tell you that for some time. (laughs) I didn't ask you to Green Gables out of charity. You know perfectly well. I told you my true reason. Nobody ought to spend Christmas here. The very idea is indecent. You asked me to Green Gables just because you were sorry for me. I am sorry for you, because you've shut out life, and now life is shutting you out. Stop it, Catherine. Open your doors to life, and life will come in. 
the Anne Shirley version of the old bromide. If you bring a smiling visage to the glass, you meet a smile, said Catherine with a shrug. <laughs> like all bromides, that's absolutely true. Now, are you coming to Green Gables or are you not? What would you say if I accepted you? To yourself, not to me. I'd say you were showing the first faint glimmer of common sense I'd ever detected in you. <laughs> Catherine laughed, surprisingly. She walked across to the window, scowled at the fiery streak, which was all that was left of the scorned sunset, and then turned. Very well, I'll go. Now you can go through the motions of telling me you're delighted and that we'll have a jolly time. <laughs> I am delighted, but I don't know if you'll have a jolly time or not. That will depend a good deal on yourself, Miss Brooke. <laughs> but Anne is right. Accepting that invitation is the first sign that Catherine is a human. <laughs> and Anne's unrelenting pursuit of this very lonely person and her frankness, openness, and her hospitality eventually break through. And, and Catherine and Anne go off their first night at Green Gables. They go off for a moonlight snowshoe through the woods. <laughs> Sounds great. We haven't had enough snow around here for things like that. Um, and Catherine finally opens up after this snowshoe hike. And the two of them find out that they actually have more in common than, than Catherine at first ever thought. They're both orphans. Um, and then when, when Anne shares her own experiences uh, of being rejected as a child... Catherine's also able to be vulnerable. And they have, they have this conversation where, where Catherine, for the first time, shares her story with someone else. Um, and at the end of that, Anne says, Anyhow, now we're going to be friends. And we're going to have a jolly ten days here to begin our friendship. I've always wanted to be friends with you, Catherine, spelled with a K. I've always felt that underneath all your prickles was something that would make you worthwhile as a friend. <laughs> So that is what you really thought of me, Catherine said. I often wondered. I wonder if when I go to bed tonight I'll feel furious with myself for pulling off my mask and letting you see into my shivering soul like this. No, you won't. You'll think, I'm glad she found out I'm human. Uh, and the two do become really good friends. Um, and lest we think that this is a one-off, uh, this same cycle, or similar cycle, of pursuing someone who's very reluctant to, to open up to a friend repeats in the next book in Anne's House of Dreams. Um, but I think really fittingly and, and movingly, uh, it, it repeats at a deeper and more intense and actually more costly level, which I think is appropriate as Anne grows up and matures. Um, and in that book, it's over there in the case, I'm not going to read right from it, but um, Anne and Gilbert are married. They move to another new town. The day that they're married, they, like, move there that night. Um, and they make the acquaintance of their nearest neighbors, Captain Jim, who I already mentioned. And there's a, a middle-aged spinster lady named Miss Cornelia. And there's a third close neighbor who is this sort of elusive woman named Leslie Moore. And the the first two, Anne hits it, hits it off with both of them um, right away. But her first meeting with Leslie is pretty rough. Um, Anne is just herself. She's always unapologetically herself. But Leslie is really hard to read, and sometimes she seems to warm up to Anne, and then other times she just totally gives her the cold shoulder, all within one conversation. Um, and then kind of just, like, 
awkwardly runs away. They're like outside in the, on the beach. Um, she just kind of leaves. So Anne's like, okay, I don't know what's going on with her. That's my paraphrase, obviously. Um, <laughs> but later, Miss Cornelia, who knows everyone in the neighborhood, she explains the reason for Leslie's standoffishness. She tells uh, the tragic story of how Leslie lost both her brother and her father at a very young age and then was later emotionally blackmailed by her mother into marrying this horrible man who later is mentally disabled and, and even worse um, when she's just 16. This all happens. And she's emotionally blackmailed to do this in order to save their family farm. It's this whole very sad story. Um, but the way that that telling that story concludes, uh, Miss Cornelia says this to Anne. She says, you will be her friend, won't you, Anne, dearie? Anne says, indeed I will if she'll let me. Miss Cornelia says, no, you must be her friend whether she'll let you or not. Just make her be friends. <laughs> And then the narrator tells us this. Anne resolved that she would win entrance into the kingdom of that lonely soul and find there the comradeship it could so richly give were it not for the cruel fetters that held it in a prison not of its own making. So Anne and Leslie uh, start becoming better friends. I mean, they are their, each other's nearest neighbors. They run into each other. Leslie comes over. Um, they start getting to know each other. And these nearest neighbors, this little group of kind of four houses become a very close-knit little community, kind of like a village within the village. Um, But still, friendship doesn't come instantly for Anne and Leslie like it did for Anne with Captain Jim and Miss Cornelia. Um, And in fact, winning, winning Leslie's full confidence and comradeship will come at at a really great cost to Anne. Um, I'm not going to spoil it for you, though. <laughs> You're going to have to go read it yourself. Uh, most of these books are public domains. So you don't have any excuse. Uh, they're just right there on the Internet. Um, so what can we learn about friendship from Anne Shirley Blythe? And there's so many things So many things that I could say. I had a huge list when I was prepping this. Um, I'm not going to give you a whole list. I'm just going to point out one thing from both of these little anecdotes. In her pursuit of Catherine, Anne doesn't take Catherine's rudeness at face value. And similarly, she resolves to pursue Leslie, to pursue friendship with Leslie, whether Leslie is rude to her, rebuffs her, runs away, whatever. Um, Whether or not Leslie returns her attempts at friendship. What Anne assumes about both of these women is that no one wants to be alone all the time. No matter how cold or prickly um, or standoffish they might be. And her response to both of these unlikely potential friends reminds me of another novel about friendship that I've mentioned, I think, in a previous lecture. It's called The Dean's Watch by Elizabeth Gouge. And that book... um, I know Lenny, Lenny likes it as well. Um, in that in that book, two men become two unlikely uh, men become friends. Two men become unlikely friends. It's a better way to say that. Um, and and this sort of web of interconnected relationships forms around them. Um, it's beautiful. I highly recommend it. But here's just one line uh, that I think is is pertinent to our discussion of, of friendship here. This is about one of the characters regarding the other. Um, He had felt a desire to call upon him, but he had not done so because he feared to intrude upon his privacy. 
For this he now blamed himself. The reasons for seclusion were many. One should find out why a man is alone before one lets him alone, for he may not want to be alone. Anne doesn't give up until she finds out whether or not Catherine and Leslie actually want to be alone. And it turns out that they don't. Catherine is just suffering from habitual loneliness. Leslie is suffering actually from intense trauma and bitterness and a deep envy that she really wishes she didn't have, but is struggling to overcome by herself. One should find out why a person is alone before one lets them alone, for they might not want to be alone. I think that's a word for us. <laughs> so as we wrap up here, I want to return to bookish lit for a minute. So like I said at the beginning, generally the problem in these books is loneliness, grief, isolation, maybe the attendant shyness and anxiety, or maybe even shame that surrounds those circumstances. And the solution, salvation even, is a communal book space that galvanizes a new community around it. Is this fantasy? I think in many ways, yes, it is. Um, it's not, they're definitely not bad, they are definitely not bad things to do, but I don't think we will solve our loneliness and make friends simply by starting a bookstore in our neighborhood or by lurking in the library stacks. In fact, in my experience, bookstores and libraries are great places to cultivate quality aloneness. Um, they're great places to go if you want to be alone. Um, because there's sort of this like sacred contract that you maybe are asked one time if you need help finding anything, but then there's like this sacred space of browsing that is protected in most places. Um, it's an alone space, yeah. Um, but I do think that bookish lit, whether whether clumsily or elegantly, depending on the book, I think it is getting at something that is real. I think we do long for friendship and community to break into our isolation, to strip away our prickly exteriors so that we can know and be known by others. Bookstores and libraries are not going to magically save us from loneliness and isolation unless we bring some other things with us. <laughs> Um, and I think here is actually where books can help us because there is a reason books are talked about as if they were people. Here, with books, Anne shows us, for example, that pursuing friendship takes work and time and perseverance, maybe even suffering, uh, risk. Anne risks a really nice Christmas holiday at home <laughs> by inviting this nasty person into it. <clears throat> So we're not going to be saved from loneliness and isolation by magical bookstores and libraries unless we are willing to ask each other if we do indeed want to be left alone. And if we say, yes, I do want to be left alone, why? And to persevere when we get ambivalent answers to that question. I think if we have indeed forgotten how to be friends and grown habituated to isolation, then maybe we need models and examples an inspiration to help us learn or relearn how to make and be and stay friends. And furthermore, if, if as Wesley Hill says, we have to learn to describe what it is we look for when we look for friendship. We need language to say, what, what are we looking for? And if literature does indeed 
I think Martha, Martha Nussbaum said this, offer us options for living, then I think we should turn to literature for these models, or at least as one place we can look for those models and for that inspiration. I don't think it has to be too late to take Dr. Murthy's second path and recommit to relationships and to people after the pandemic. I think maybe we just need some help remembering how. And like people, like our communities, like mentors and friends, books can help us cultivate those virtues, many virtues, but including those virtues of how to be a friend. I think... I think we can read for friendship's sake. So like I said at the beginning, the title was phrased as a question. I put a lot of things out there. And so now we can turn to discussion and to questions if you have other examples you want to bring. Um, but I'm going to end the formal formal lecture part of this now. Um, thanks for attending. And yeah, I'd like to open it up. Open it up to some discussion. Yeah, John. Do you find the church is more of a place where people can do that, be alone, or more of a place that people can find community? If you get those people that go to church for decades, it's a good place for them to be alone. Mm-hmm. And then you got people that come in, and that's their community. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think they're... Like, yeah, there are people who come to any place regularly who can be totally anonymous. Um, our culture is kind of weird like that, that we that that's a possibility. Um, it's weird in the history of the world and in the world. Um, and I think, um, I think that's where that question of, like, okay, this person comes in and slips out. Do they want to be alone? That would be a place to ask that. Because the church is supposed to be a place of community. That's how it's designed. Interestingly, in the Arthur Brooks article that I mentioned, um, in one of the surveys he talks about, oh, let's see if I can find it. Um, He said, oh yeah, he said, um, this is like measuring rates of happiness and or rates of unhappiness during the pandemic. Um, He says, of those studied the Two groups saw their rate of unhappiness rise more significantly than others, single people and those who did not regularly attend a religious service. Um, So being a part of a church is actually a really great, I think, a really positive thing to stay in community state, to avoid isolation. Yeah. I don't know if that was just throwing a couple of things towards your question. I don't know if I answered your question, but... Yeah, it's a big question. Yeah, Hadley. Could you talk more about um, the how-to's the right word um, for, I think you were talking about it, but it was in the scandal of holiness um, or kind of when you read a book, how does that maybe connect more to friendship or maybe it is just, you know, quality loneliness, but could you talk a little bit more about that? Mm -hmm. How does reading result in virtue it's very complicated it's not just a one-to-one um that's why there's whole books about it two whole books right here um um and so uh yeah 
because um, I don't know if I, I give a whole lecture basically about this also. So <laughs> I don't know if I could summarize that at all. But um, I think basically what what both of these authors are kind of um, dealing with is is the idea of like we. And this is even sort of related to like uh, Dick's talk about heroism. It's like we need models, and this is kind of just how we live our lives. We have models of how of people we want to be like, and deciding, <laughs> figuring out who we want those models to be because we will have models one way or another. Um, being conscious of them and choosing good ones, I think, is a big part of virtue formation. Um, because, yeah, when you start to inter- interrogate, like, wait, who do I want to be like? Oh, it's, like, I don't know. Somehow in my mind it's, I'm trying to think of, like, a celebrity that I can't think of anybody. <laughs> I want to be like Zendaya. It's like, well, what? Like, is that ever going to happen? Like, probably not. Um, but who could I be like, you know? Um and for Christians, I think, like, obviously the goal is, like, how do we become like Christ? And um, I did not end up referencing Dick's book, Heroism, for this talk, but I read it for this talk. <laughs> um, so it's it's in my mind. Um, but in it, he talks about how, um, I think it's Paul, right, uh, says, you know, insofar, now I'm blanking on the verse. Dick's going to have to help me. As far as I'm like Christ follow me essentially that's not that's a paraphrase but um and we can i think there's other models available to us so in in this book she's arguing that not just real live real live or dead saints but like historical people but also fictional people can be those models for us i don't know if that yeah yeah helps. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah marty um yeah just following from what from what you said i think a good story can make goodness attractive, mm-hmm. makes virtue attractive, and so that, which is which is why it can inspire us to want to be like that. If if, if somebody, and it's much easier to make badness to make people attractive. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many you know movies and, and books make make evil attractive? But it's an incredible challenge to make virtue and goodness mm-hmm. something that's appealing and attractive. But mm-hmm. but Mm-hmm. you know 
um, abuse you verbally or whatever, and and just let that roll off your back. And it says a lot about um, the right kind of self-confidence, strength in your your own. Mm-hmm. For me, it would be my own ex- my own acceptance mm-hmm. um, to the only one who actually matters, <laughs> whose opinion only matters, is who is God. Mm-hmm. That I'm okay, and it's worth the risk. And if I get slapped for it, that's okay. It's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing to draw out. Um, With, It's really interesting throughout, I mean, obviously it's a huge series of books. I could only pull out a couple of things, but it's really interesting. There is a part in, um, I think it's in Anne's House of Dreams where it talks about her Someone asks her, I think, like, aren't you ever lonely? Because she is alone a lot. Her husband's a doctor, so he's traveling out, you know, all the time to visit patients and out in the middle of the night and stuff. And she says, no, I don't think I've ever been lonely. Um, And she talks kind of about how she cultivates her aloneness, kind of like the the writers that I talked about. Part of it's her very famous imagination. She has a very rich, imaginative life. Um, and, And some of it, I think, is also the strength of of relationships she already has. Um, I do think it's not like preached at you in the books at all, but I do think that there, it, faith is a real part of the characters' lives. Um, yeah. And in some of the later books, she does talk about it a little bit more, especially when she experiences suffering. Um, yeah. Which is really powerful. Yeah. Dick. What struck me what you read is that her incredible determination Mm-hmm. She didn't give up. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have given up. He went right on. There were about five times. I would have given up. I tried. I did a lot good. I tried. And she's kicking my face. That's it. She doesn't give up. She keeps going. That was something really powerful in that. Yeah. It's really is what biblically love is all about. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter that we, that we didn't get the response that we wanted. She just keeps going. Yep. Yeah, Lisa. It's just um, something that came to mind as you were talking about the, the different people, talking about the joy of going off alone and enjoying the book. And I was just thinking of the contrast to um, how much I've enjoyed sharing books of, as a sh- it's a shared experience here at Labrie where mm-hmm. somebody's reading and we're all, you know, and um, it was funny because I think this first term here, uh, it was looking for something to relax with, and I just delighted in Winnie the Pooh mm-hmm. after Sarah and Brett. So I'm like, okay, I'll read Winnie the Pooh, you know. Mm-hmm. And I did it like one night, and it's like, this is no fun alone, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, there, uh, so there's like, there's joy to, to community, mm-hmm. to sharing a book as a community, or you think of all the book clubs out there and mm-hmm. stuff, and even if you're mm-hmm. not reading all together, but you're coming together to discuss. Yeah, there's a whole genre of books about that experience. <laughs> just described. Yep. Yeah. Amanda, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I loved how you just shared about Anna and Diana. I mean, I like the love with the miniseries. Mm-hmm. I just loved her. I was just struck by her. Because um, you know she's so lonely from, like, her place of being an orphan and coming from that place. But I liked all those stories you shared from the book because I think it shows like when we're really lonely, the best way to 
deal with that is to actually think of others instead mm-hmm. of our own loneliness. Like it's more mm-hmm. uh, others-centered instead of self-centered. And I, I find it interesting because um, I feel like our culture today is so centered on like, wow, I'm so lonely, you know, which... Believe me, going through the pandemic, I definitely felt that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, and I think I was constantly trying to find ways to connect with others because I just felt it so keenly. Mm-hmm. Um, being a musician and not being able to do my art form and not being able to see people in that communal mm-hmm. way and mm-hmm. work together. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, I just I I like these books because I like what you shared. I just mm-hmm. want to say that because it shows how like just focusing on others can mm-hmm. help us in our own place. Like mm-hmm. it's a, it helps others and it helps ourselves. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So. Yeah, I love that at the at the end of what I read about Anne and Catherine is she's like, Yay, I get a friend. Like I knew you would be worth it. Um she's not like Whew, won that one over, good job, check, you know. She's like, Yay, I have a new friend, like this is so exciting. Uh, it's the beginning of something. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, hand in the very back. Sarah. <laughs> Hello. Um, I don't remember how this is portrayed in the books. I'm remembering the scene in the, the movie, the mm-hmm. Canadian miniseries. Um, like when she's still in the orphanage and she's talking to her reflection mm-hmm. in the glass. Mm-hmm. I think yep. her friend, her imaginary friend who is her reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wonder if you have thoughts or if you think of other things from the books about that, like idea of even befriending yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, the critical that, like that's a critical foundation. Yeah, I think like she's practicing for all of these coming friendships in mm-hmm. her life. By yeah. learning how to befriend herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which I think is a really hard. Like, we don't stand up to ourselves like she stands up to Catherine. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And, like, what would happen for us and for our friendships and our ability to befriend and be befriended? We mm-hmm. do that. Yeah, that's a really good thought. I think, I think a lot of the first book as she's growing up is about that befriending herself. She's been so rejected her whole life. Um, one of the like fame, like well-known parts of the story is she hates her red hair, right? She was, wishes she could have raven black hair. Uh, she tries to dye it and it turns green. Like it's a very famous uh, episode of the story. Um, and I think that's like a visual, like a physical visual, like representation of that deeper journey of learning that who she is as herself is valuable and um and and lovable um yeah there's more i mean i i would love to do more work with this than i have in the in the book that's right before anna of wendy poplar's when she's in at college there's some interesting dynamics with friendships and also especially with romance um, that I think involves some of that, like, shakiness of, like, oh, I have these ideals, I have these things, and, like, do I know who I am? Do I know who my real friends are? That sort of identity formation kind of stuff happens while she's at college, uh, which I think happens for many of us when we're at college. Um, 
which is so great because these were written a hundred years ago, um, but I think they're still very like realistic, accessible, even though the world is quite different that we live in. Um, so that some of like um, I forget who was saying this, but some of her strength, Marty, uh, comes from like having figured some of that out <laughs> before she's an adult released into the world. I think is also good for that. I don't know. That was just kind of riffing on what you said, Sarah. Not really addressing it, but yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lydia. I was wondering, if, curious, if after this you have like kind of a definition for friendship? Because one thing mm-hmm. that I'm thinking about listening to this and that I thought about before is that sometimes I think when we say the word friendship today, it can have a very narrow connotation. Like it can be like someone in my age range usually of my gender who like has similar interests and we can like share similar interests and like do similar things but like the way the way Anne reaches out to people and the way that I think even biblically sometimes the way friendship is defined is it's much broader mm-hmm. it's much more about like caring about just caring about the person like Anne was just caring about people where they're at and and then it meant that they're doesn't matter kind of if you're this like if they're similar to you or not it's just more about caring about the person like it's just a much broader mm-hmm. thing um and i think i think that kind of opens possibilities because i think you know if we we have this very narrow idea of friendship then there's like only very specific people like it becomes almost like the romantic relationship where it's just like there's just certain particular people who might fit in that very mm-hmm. little box mm-hmm. as opposed to like it's almost kind of like Quakerish, where like everybody's my friend, mm-hmm. friend so and so. It's just like, what if, what if you're just called to care for everybody who comes across your path, and like in that sense, mm-hmm. everyone's your friend, or at least ever you're called to be a friend to everyone, mm-hmm. whether or not they're willing to open up. So. Yeah, I do. I do think that there is a broadening, um, and that that that, that Anne's story is is illustrative of that um, in the, I didn't have time to talk about this right in the lecture, but that little community, I mean, uh, Anne's house of dreams, like she's a newlywed at the, she gets married right at the beginning. You could think that it's like her and Gilbert's like love story. It's really not. Gilbert's like kind of around some of the time. I mean, he's a traveling, he's a busy man. He's a doctor. Um, and he is part of the community when he's there, but really it's a book about Anne, Leslie, Miss Cornelia, and Captain Jim being basically best neighbors and best friends. And they are a diverse group. Leslie and Anne are similar in age, um, but like Captain Jim is this elderly seaman who runs the lighthouse. Miss Cornelia is this very eccentric spinster woman who hates men, um, but she's friends with Captain Jim because he's okay for some reason. Um <laughs> And it, it is, like, I think really lovely that this, and I use the word village, and um, that was a helpful idea from Jenny Allen's book. She talks about this idea of a village, which we don't have in our culture very naturally. And she calls, the, she talks about that kind of in terms of, like, the 50 people that you see all the time and that you're kind of around. So it doesn't mean, like, all at once necessarily, but, like, the people you go to church with, the people you work with, like maybe that kind of like overlaps your family, whatever could be your village, who you regularly see kind of every week, this group of people. And you might not be best friends with every single one of them, but you are pretty acquainted. You know each other's names, you know what you do, you, you know, 
have this, and she uses the word, of, the language of like village. You're kind of, you know what's happening in those people's lives. They know what's happening in your life when you're happy, when you're sad. Um, and that's just not really something we have in our society, but how, what would it look like to cultivate that? Um, some of the best chapters in the later Anne books are just gossip. <laughs> like, it's just a couple. It's usually Miss Cornelia and um, Anne and, like, one other person. And they just, like, talk about the news of the town. Um, like, who's getting married, who died, who, like, whatever. Um, and, but it's not gossip in, like, a mean-spirited sense. It's, a go- it's like, chattering about each other and about people because you all know each other and you belong to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's hilarious. Uh, especially when you get somebody somebody in there who has strong opinions about people. Um, oops. Um, yeah, John, in the back. Yeah, so the, the category you shared in the beginning, you said we're geared towards millennial women. Do you notice, like, in different groups of people, are there, are there similar topics of loneliness or... Like, are there books geared towards millennial men that have that same thread? Or? I don't read books yeah, for millennial yeah. men, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, no, there are, like... As I said, the study of this of this potential subgenre is, is in its infancy. Um, Nikayla definitely would know. Did you... What were you saying? I, like, um, like, the rogue detective and the isolated, you know... Like Lone Ranger. Police officer, Tom Clancy. Like, there is, mm-hmm. I mean, this is just my observation from working as a library. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what people go to. Yeah. And, like, you know, sort of the Marlboro man all out there on his own, but then is, like, softened. Mm-hmm. Buy a good book, maybe. Like, <laughs> I mean, or by, like, a neighbor, or, like, yeah. I, like a consistent relationship mm-hmm. that keeps like, yeah. I think that there's something very to that. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a guy that I just discovered today named Charlie Lovett. Um, so he's an author, and he's written three books that are um, definitely in the genre in a lot of ways. Called One's called The Bookman's Tale, and one's The Lost Book of the Grail. Both of those have male protagonists um, who are sad and lonely, <laughs> uh, who love books, and, and are, like, trying to find... They're both trying. I think. I think Charlie Lovett was a, um, like a rare books collector or something. I don't know. Um, so both of his characters are like that, and they're like trying to find this elusive lost manuscript or something. Um, but they're also grieving or lonely. I'm saying that like that's not a big deal. That's really sad. A lot of us are. Yes. Um, so it kind of does fit into the trope, but I don't think. From the way those books looked, just like their covers, they didn't look like they were marketed as chiclet. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, Lenny. Yeah, Lenny. So, what about Barry? It's not at all like these. No. But the concept of the community mm-hmm. of Fort Lewis is, is very much like you were describing mm-hmm. and living in a community of yeah. people. And the, the, the definition of community for that diverse group of people that are in that one place. Mm-hmm. And when Jaber goes away and, and feels 
finally when he gets back, this is where I belong. This mm-hmm. is my community. This is, and I was an orphan. I was, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> went to an orphanage. I had all these other things. And now I'm home. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have anybody that is related to him, but it's just, but mm-hmm. don't you think that, that Wendell Berry is trying to say something mm-hmm. about some of these same things? about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. About the need for community, and it's so diverse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely say that, that Wendell, Wendell Berry definitely falls more in the category. Also, just to, just to be clear, I'm not saying that the Anne of Green Gables books are in the genre of bookish lit. They're not. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was like a side. That was more my like starting question, like why are there so many books about this? Yeah. Montgomery's books and Wendell Berry's books, I think, are are books that are worth spending time with and learning Mm -hmm. virtue and friendship from, um, among many others that we could probably name. I think especially regarding, yeah, um, regarding community and friendship. Um, Obviously, there's lots of great books about many things, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Ben? um, I mean, I know that men and women both need friends, maybe in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just wondering if there is any real equivalent of... of in, in some ways, it's, it's an unhelpful stereotype, but I think some sort of some literature buys into it that, that it's okay for the man to be to remain alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and if, if, if it's a book about the, the lone, hardened man who softens and becomes a friend to somebody, that book is marketed to women. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm just, I'm just wondering whether that's, I'm not saying that's the right thing at all, but I'm just thinking, um, is male-male friendship something that is really lifted up as being like a good, a, a good goal for men? Mm. Not just in words, but in terms of the imagination, like mm-hmm. pictures of male friendships mm-hmm. that are, uh, are attractive and good and beautiful, and, and uh, mm-hmm. it's way easier to find examples of women who are close friends and that being having this sort of selfish mm-hmm. role in their lives yeah. than it is literature about men. Mm-hmm. I think. And well, I don't, that's I, why you know, the barber shop. Yeah. yeah, that's why Jaber Crow is, is a really good Jaber example. Crow. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, a whole yeah. other kind of thing, but yeah, it yeah. is it's real community. Mm-hmm. They're a very diverse group, but, but they they need they. Yeah, I do think you're right, though, that there are are fewer examples. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to find that, but but West Hill actually does bring up a couple novels in his book Spiritual Friendship that involve male friendships. Um, one is right at the beginning here. Well, this one, the, the Watchmaker and the Dean. Yeah, the, the Dean's, Dean's very, the Dean's Watch is that's a. That's, that is a wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, yeah. So he does reference a few. I don't know if I can find them, but um, but I think part of his his lament and complaint is that there yeah. aren't enough yeah. good portrayals. Um, I think men get weirded out by it as if as if there's some sort of homoerotic. Yeah, <laughs> which, which is what which is this really book sad. is really helpful at addressing yeah. as well. Um, more, a more common man thing is like like Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson where like one of them is a sidekick to the yeah. other yeah. Yeah. Like learning or whatever but it's not really friendship as much mm-hmm. you know? 
Right, yeah, or, or there's like a... There, the emphasis isn't on the friendship, the emphasis right. on what, is what they're doing together. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. That's yeah. the goal. Which is not, yeah, which, that's mm-hmm. not, not friendship. Yeah. 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 Which is, mm-hmm. you know, and Lewis is the four loves. Yeah. Right? yeah. He, mm-hmm. he yeah. elevates friendship mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to a really high level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but it's that kind of thing. It's a side-by-side side looking, looking at something, something else. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not looking at each other. Mm-hmm. It's looking at something something else mm-hmm. together. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Sarah. I'm just curious more of the story of the Dean's Watch, because I, I think this quote is pretty profound, mm-hmm. and the fact that it's about a friendship between two men, and that's the context of this quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like that, yeah, like what, what gets them over that aloneness, <laughs> that aloneness assumption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. Well, I'm, I don't know if I can actually. It's such a gentle story, but. It's a literal um, watch, so he's a watchmaker. Yeah. So one so per, one person is one person is this dean of a cathedral, so a very powerful person in the church life of this whole cathedral city. The whole city's like built up. It's like Ely Cathedral is what it's based on in in England. If you've ever been there, it's like at the top of the town. Um, so he's he's this very powerful, um, pretty like physically unattractive. He's a very large man. It describes him like this. Like people are kind of they're pretty scared of him because he's like just not the most like warm person. Not that he doesn't want to be. He doesn't know how to be. He's quite shy. He's very very bookish. Um, not in the sense of a bookish chiclet, but in the, in the sense of like, he's very scholarly. And so he has a hard time, like in his sermons, the people are like, what is he even talking about? Um, stuff like that. So he, that's one character. The other is a watchmaker. So a totally different class of people um, who is responsible for taking care of all the watches and clocks in the town. So he winds the and cleans and stuff, the Dean's watch. Um, and the way their friendship starts is he puts... I don't really know what this is. I need to like look at pocket watches more, but um, there aren't a lot around. <laughs> he puts a watch paper, is what it's called, into the watch, like for everyone he's done, and they have these little like jokes or like maxims or things on them. And he accidentally puts like a funny one in the deans, and he's like, "Oh no, I switched them around. That was supposed to be for my buddy." Um, and uh, so. So he's, like, so embarrassed that he put the wrong one in the dean's, and the dean, like, calls him in and is like, oh, I see what you, like, put in my watch. And he they actually connect over that. The dean's like, this is a really good thing for me to hear, and, like, it's actually funny, or, like, whatever. Like, they actually, like, connect. Um, and the dean decides he wants to learn horology, so the study of watches and clocks, um, from this watchmaker. And that's sort of spins out the relationship. There's a lot more, a lot more to the story. The dean is elderly and he, um, he has this friend who's a, who's a woman who is even older than he is. And, um, she advises him that he, or he's like, I want to, I want joy in my old age. And she's like, well, go meet people basically is what she says. And so he tries to meet people. He becomes friends with this little toddler girl, uh, who's a spoiled brat. And he becomes friends with this, Apprentice boy, and he becomes friends with this watchmaker. Yeah, that's kind of about, of yeah, this this minister who's um, basically senile. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so he starts like reaching out. So it's about all kinds of relationships, but the key one is the watchmaker. 
That is really, really valuable. One of one of my best friends is seventy one years old, and yeah, it's very precious to me. Yeah, Michaela. Um, this might just be like a theology booklet, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just because I've read probably ninety percent of the books 
definitely don't want to say because there's a lot of them they're pointless i think they're expressing something real um some definitely better than others i'm sure um i mean there's people who like churn out but the potato pie society that's a good book right yeah and and other ones too um yeah i actually let me see here Oh, this is just the books that I listed. The ones that are in the context of war, I think yeah. they, they, mm-hmm. they go a little deeper, you know. Yeah. The Berlin bookshop. Yeah. Oh, I still called it Chick Lit in this one. It's just general, more general lit at this point. Um, <laughs> in my research, this is like unfolding field right now, um, as we speak. My research is happening. Um, but these are some of like sort of the early ones. Yeah. And the way you kind of know that is they've at least three of those have been made into movies. Yes. So they've been around long enough for that to happen. Um, and I think some of the, like, less rich ones are, like, riding, riding the train that these, these books kind of started. Um, yeah, I would even say, like, the, they're a little bit more maybe adjacent. Um, I don't know if anyone's read... This is also really interesting to me that um, a, a lot of them come from England. Not all of them are, are from America. But The Awakening of Miss Prim, like the other two that I mentioned, translated from Swedish, translated from French. Um, the Awakening of Miss Prim was uh, originally in Spanish from Spain. Um, and that one I just like threw in there because I think people should read it. Mm-hmm. Especially, okay, the main, not the main character, the hero love interest is like a combo Mr. Darcy and C.S. Lewis. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ben. I, I just, it just popped into my head that the, uh, you know, the, the, the live action Beauty of the Beast movie is totally mm. part of this also. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, Belle, Belle is like the she lives to visit the little town book, you know, bookshop, and she borrows a new book every every week mm-hmm. in order to escape in her mind from her you know, little provincial town, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then being being allowed into the beast's library, and uh, you know, is this great sort of freedom? Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't what I was going to say. 
it occurred to me as I was raising my hand. So, um, cool. I just, I just echoing what some of us already said. I, I love the, um, like you were saying, the Apostle Paul says, you know, insofar as I imitate Christ, imitate me. The to me, the the passage you read about uh, about Anne and Catherine was like that because that you, you know, imitate Anne insofar as she imitates Christ mm-hmm. <laughs> because. It's just this relentless pursuit of somebody mm-hmm. um, who doesn't want them and just not being discouraged. And so, so there's something that I found so wonderful about that is, is how much that resembles, the, you know, the pursuit of Christ after after people that don't want him, you know, mm-hmm. and um, he's not discouraged. He's, he pursues us and pursues us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then actually the... the the fact that we are loved is what makes us actually into something mm. lovable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, it's not that Jesus is waiting for us to be lovable in order to love us. It's his love that actually makes us into the object that's worth loving. Yeah. Uh, and so the, tra- the trans- transformative power of love uh, comes out in, those, in that relationship really mm-hmm. powerfully. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I love, that. I love that passage you read. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that you brought that up because that was in some some earlier outline of this talk that really was coming to mind that idea of like we think of like we'll be we'll be friends and then I'll love you but what if what if it was like I'll love you and then and then we'll be friends like mm-hmm. the lo- that love comes first like a choice yeah. to love someone um a hard choice yeah <laughs> yeah there were lots of Lots of other nicer people to be friends with um, in Anne's circle. Or she could have been like, oh, I'm only here at this job for three years. I don't need to make friends with these people. I have friends back home. Um, which she definitely doesn't do. The whole book is, is literally about. And then she went to dinner at this person's house and found out their whole life story and <laughs> helped them out with their problems and all, all the things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sarah. Um, just to throw out an idea, a book, a book series that I'm reading right now is by James Harriet. Mm-hmm. Um, Creatures Great and Small mm-hmm. are amazing when it comes to like just regular everyday guy connections. Like the amount of time they interact with people on just a really normal level mm-hmm. is just is amazing to me. So yeah, that's a good really example. Really mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I can those books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hi. Sorry to say, I. Um, I find it hard to read books. Mm-hmm. I think uh, partly just academically, I came, it was a very goal-driven thing. I'm mm-hmm. assigned this, so I'll do it, mm-hmm. and I can throw myself into it, but without an assignment, I find it very hard to do. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate the, um, the, the quote you gave about, uh, you find options for life or something like that. Yeah, that literature can provide us with options for living. Mm-hmm. Who said that? I'm pretty sure that's Martha Nussbaum, who's a, okay. who's a philosopher. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. and also the quote from Lewis about um, the arts and per- pursuing as a way of breaking out of provincialism and, and loneliness, mm-hmm. and that uh, just gives me a real nice, fresh way of mm-hmm. looking at. Oh, I'm glad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, I gave a lecture like a year ago called "How to Read a Story: A Guide for Practical People." Um, I don't know how helpful of a guide it is, but I talk more about that Lewis um, quote and more in that whole book, kind of how he's talking about reading. Um, I don't know if that's, it's probably on our podcast if you wanted to check that out. Um, 
Yeah, it should still be up there. What was the name of it? It's called How to Read a Story, okay. a Guide for Practical People. Um, because I think I think you're not alone in that. I think that's very common. The ways that so often we're taught to read in school can actually be really stifling um, mm-hmm. in terms of like actually loving reading or wanting to do any of like have anything to do with it once you're out, you know. Um, yeah, and I think there is a lot more scope scope for the imagination, as Anne would say, <laughs> in reading. Shout out to audiobooks. Yeah, audiobooks are also a great way, um, a great way to get get back into reading. Um, a man, uh, an author named Alan Jacobs, whose work is really helpful. He has a book called "The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction," that is also very good and very readable. Um, and he actually talks about like how reading on his Kindle helped him get back into reading after being. I mean, he's a literature professor, like having books come out of ears in school. Um, yeah. 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 So thank you for your talk. You're so, welcome. Uh, I remember when you were talking about the first slides, you were talking um, people pursue more on the romantic relationship mm-hmm. and they are not paying too much attention on this friendship or just a general relationship. I think that's pretty true because um, uh, it's reminding me to think about uh, a book that I read uh, uh, the seven years of singleness. So mm-hmm. typically, a single Christian, uh, they just are going to church. They want to maybe date someone or find a partner, and then sometimes they will feel lonely. So mm-hmm. because uh, singleness, then uh, everything, even during this pandemic. So uh, yeah, there are a lot of loneliness. And but uh, most of time, uh, we just. Uh, uh, because singly, there are a lot, lot of gifts as well mm-hmm. in yourself because you can uh, you can have more time to connect with people like you said, mm-hmm. to have a broad friendship mm-hmm. because after you got married you would focus on your family and then you don't have too much time to mm-hmm. uh, be engaged in a very broad relationship and even with the community, church community so mm-hmm. I think uh, if we just uh, make use of our time and to connect people, mm-hmm. to, to build up this friendship, and then we can just uh, solve this problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a good good resource as well. So there was a hand over here. Yes? No? Maybe? So oh, yeah. Mirza? Trying to remember it. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I, I, I was just going back to um, what Mr. Owen said um, mm-hmm. about um, reading. I, I also found it. I am finding it hard to read, and I'll start several different books and be like, oh, this is really great stuff. Yes, A.W. Tozer, right, and <laughs> C.S. Lewis, great. And then I'm just like, wow, that was really good, and I'm wiped out, and I haven't finished this book yet. Um, but um, I was actually thinking about this today um, because reading books along with other hobbies, something that you also mentioned, they're really good for us, mm-hmm. but in an age of distraction, mm-hmm. I think they can often seem like things that'll rob our time when they'll actually maximize our time. Mm-hmm. And I'm the kind of person who struggles with, I don't know if anyone else feels this way, 
I could read something, or I could scroll through YouTube and see what entertaining videos are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll think that fills me up, but then I actually feel empty after mm-hmm. going through mm-hmm. the yeah. videos at least two times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really real. Yeah, and it takes, I mean, reading, reading good books, it does take muscles that it's like working out, like you have to work at it, and it might not be fun, especially the first few times, um, until those muscles are kind of um, stretched out a little bit, you know, and like working again, um, or for the first time even, and and that's okay. I think sometimes we can be, like, hard on ourselves, too. Like, right. what's wrong with me? I'm a full-grown adult, and I can't even read a book. Um, you know, and I think, yeah, I think we can be gentle with ourselves on that, too. And, and I think those things actually end up being more restful than the things that we, like, instinctively think are restful these days. Um, we think it's, it takes so much effort to pick up that book and mm-hmm. read 20 pages, and mm-hmm. then at the end of it, you yeah, and that's what I was sort of hoping to to help you all start thinking about. I didn't talk about it too much, but that idea of, like, how do we cultivate our downtime, uh, our alone time? Uh, there's so many options available to us. And I think it's really worth thinking through with discernment. Yeah, what will actually be restful and, and, and filling and life-giving. Yeah. Yeah, John. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a bookish person. Person, but I, I think the big challenge for me is just finding a book, just starting. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in like Netflix or YouTube, like it's kind of right there. Like there's a huge catalog of movies. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I don't know. I find myself sitting there not knowing what to watch, and eventually I come on something. And mm-hmm. when it comes to reading, I don't always know where, like where to start. I mean, maybe that's just going back and. of community being helpful in reading is like, you know, if you have a friend who reads, like ask them what are you reading? Is it any good? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Um, But I do think, and this is actually where, like I kind of made fun of this, but um, you can go to a bookstore or to a library and be like hey, I don't really read stuff, but do you have anything that's good? <laughs> you know, like, and their job, their job is to help you find it. Um, they might not be a book apothecary, like most of you refer to, who, like, sits you down in a chair and asks you questions about, like, your morning routine and then prescribes books. But they might, I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, and what to read next? I mean, it's Anne, Anne Boyle's website. She's the mother of Starcy, but you can put in on whattoreadnext.com like a title of a book you liked, and she'll give you ten titles mm-hmm. that wow. you might enjoy. And I mean, it's a huge range of things. Yeah. But I 
think that children's literature mm-hmm. is is a great place to start if you're not a reader, um, because it is so compelling. Because oftentimes the story just engages in your imagination that just can mm-hmm. avoid a lot of just garbage. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of garbage in children's literature too, but like old children's literature, I mm-hmm. think, is an amazing place to start. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, like, if you can remember a book that you loved as a child, starting there can just, like, reawaken some of that pleasure in reading. If you didn't have that experience, which is also true for many people, didn't read as children either, um, then I think, like, there are there are people and resources. I mean, even our library database will do a similar thing where it's like, if you liked this, here's, like, six more. Our library catalog will do that. Six more that are like this. Or like, I mean, the way that I found this guy, Charlie Lovett, was that I just glanced at the back of this, um, and he endorsed this book. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, okay, He. I wonder if he's doing something similar. Mm-hmm. That's usually who, who endorses mm-hmm. books, people who are. And then Nina George, who wrote this one, endorsed this one. <laughs> um, so there's like a community of, of writers as well. <laughs> what Marilyn Robinson calls the community of the written word. Um, yeah. What was the name of the book? How to read a story, a practical guide. Um, that was a, that was a lecture that I gave called How to Read a Story, a Guide for Practical People. So that's on the podcast, the South Borough Library podcast. Yes. There's maybe there's a book that's definitely better than my lecture, probably. But um, I know. Yeah. Asking questions a long time, so I don't know if it's about that. But I guess the one thing I'm wondering about is um, I can see books like helping form you and mm-hmm. you know role models and stuff. But the idea of a book being a friend, mm-hmm. I to me like a friend, you're you're interacting with them and they're interacting back with you, and I don't really see how a book does that, and mm-hmm. so I guess I just wondered, I don't know if you want to expound on it or anything, mm-hmm. but um, it didn't feel, I don't know if I necessarily agree with mm-hmm. or understand Or it. yeah, it doesn't, doesn't connect with your experience or something, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a real way in which, um, I mean, books... Generally, now we're getting into a weird time with technology, but generally they're written by a person. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, historically, they've been written by people. Um, even if they were written by a ghostwriter, there's, there's still a person back there somewhere. Um, and they, and so in a sense, that person is communicating something to you. Some, for some reason, they thought something was important enough to share, whether that was a story out of their imagination or deeply personal wrestlings with theology, um, and important, important in that sense. Um, there's, there's, there's another person on the, on the other side here. And, um, and so that I think is a way in which, and if you read a lot of the same author, you'll, you'll learn their voice. Um, I think in a lot of ways, like you would learn a friend's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do start 
you can. You don't necessarily, but you can start engaging with them as you would another person. Um, especially, I mean, especially this happens with like nonfiction books, but I think it, it happens with fiction too, where um, maybe it's more the characters that you sort of start connecting with and, and thinking of as people, yeah. or or um, yeah, in other kinds of books, the the author maybe or the, yeah, the implied author. Um, and I don't know. I think I think some of it has to do with how you read. Um, and there's different ways different ways to read for sure. I guess um, it feels like it's more though, like what you're describing, as best I can follow, is it's all happening kind of in your imagination, and because you could even say that with somebody who's like like an author who's now dead, but like the closest I could think of, like it's the Bible and. That's a living book where mm-hmm. there really is truly a two-way thing, mm-hmm. sometimes with the Holy Spirit going back and forth. But I don't. I, I feel like what you're describing more is like you you get to know them and then you can kind of imagine, but it's not like you're really getting back. What to which way is the one way from you to the book or from the book to you? Um. Mm-hmm. I guess it's just it's happening I just feel like it's all happening inside your mind mm-hmm. the other person's static because it's been written and it's there mm-hmm. but it's not going to change how you inact, interact with it will change mm-hmm. but that's all coming from you mm-hmm. yeah a book isn't a person but in a lot of ways, it does act like one because there there is or was a person behind it, and there it is actually I think a two way engagement. The book is speaking to you, and you are bringing questions, bringing engagement, bringing attention, um, maybe talking back, maybe being angry. There are books, there are novels that I've gotten so angry at that I've like pitched them in the corner of the room for a while. Um, <laughs> So, like, then sometimes I pick them up again. Sometimes I'm like, no. Actually, this one I gave up on because it was getting dumb. Um, <laughs> and so, um, so there is that, like, two-way um, two, two street. I don't pitch my friends into the corners of rooms, but sometimes I'm like, I need a break. I need a break uh, from this conversation. <laughs> Yeah. Peter, you had something in the back maybe related to that. I was going to pick up an example of the Bible because, mm-hmm. you know, I go from Genesis to Revelation and then immediately start again. And it is as though you're kind of building on a relationship that, mm-hmm. you know, you do that 30, 40 times and, you know, you get to know these people. Mm-hmm. really, really well, like, oh, David, you're a putz, you know, when are you going to stop being a putz? Things of that nature. Uh, you just don't change. But I am also thinking, though, uh, like, like for me, whenever I reread Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. you don't know, look at it, it's a uh, it is as though something new is about to happen, mm-hmm. and something good and beautiful, and it is uh, it is interactive, mm-hmm. uh, 
And, and maybe, maybe that's not, not true for everyone, but I do feel mm-hmm. as though it, uh, it is formational, mm-hmm. not just informational. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I think that's an important, well. important and I distinction. I think it happens more in good fiction, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's true. It's not fact, but it's truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Lord of the Rings is a good example. It's just, mm-hmm. I feel like I know C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of it's truth fiction. But you've also, I think that's another point, and that uh, that um, Peter also made up uh, made is like rereading is also a really important part of that. You spent a lot of time with C.S. Lewis, yeah, through his works, um, and that I think is anal- can be analogous to a, f- a friend. Like you met them one time, and then what happens when you live together for a while? Um, yeah. something different than just an acquaintance where you had one conversation and then moved on. Um, yeah. Yeah, Ben. Just to, just to um, continue in this conversation, mm-hmm. I, think there's, I, I kind of agree with you, Lisa, that there's a way in which, I mean, it, a book is, doesn't replace, there's no way in which books can replace no. friendships with people. Right. Um, it's not like an alternative to the, um, mm-hmm. because there's, I mean, one thing that I, I think, it, it, uh, in terms of relationship, a dialogue back and forth, it lacks the immediacy of a response that a friend can challenge you. And so, but this, but I would totally want to say that um, over time, engaging with a book, a book does challenge you, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's by giving you a vision of what of what goodness can be that you don't measure up to, or whether it's whether it's some um, it could be any number of different things, but there is, it's not the immediate back and forth, mm-hmm. but it is uh, a slower process. But I think, mm-hmm. I think it is, it, it, um, it can still function in, in a way that friendship does, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, yeah, but not, but not like, if you're only friends with books, that would be a problem. Yeah, that is the problem in yeah. a lot of these yeah. novels that I've mentioned. Like the precise problem is they're more comfortable with books than with people. Because books don't immediately talk back. Right, but when <laughs> when real people enter their lives and they join these communities, they don't stop reading. They yeah. actually continue reading, maybe even better mm-hmm. than they used mm-hmm. to. Reading together, whatever whatever it looks like. I think that's important to realize that yeah, it's not it's not a replacement. Um, yeah, but it is something that I think can be like like I mentioned that a way of a way of preparing us for the work of friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, formational mm-hmm. for sure. But it was kind of making me think that somebody alluded to social media. Like it always bothered me on Facebook that people are called friends. Mm-hmm. Like it's not friend. No, it's not what a friend mm-hmm. is. And so. I was kind of thinking it's similar to that, like, because it, it's just, um, mm-hmm. but I, I resonate with a lot of those yeah. too, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I won't go into this now, but uh, in, in my other lecture about how to read a, a story, I talk more about that, like, how do we read so that it is more of that kind of a interaction rather than just, like, passing our eyes over a page and being like, okay, cool, that's over, <laughs> whatever, you know? Um, yeah. 
All right, well, we'll, we'll go, we'll go, yeah, one, two, and then, yeah. Okay, um, you mentioned Wesley Hill sometimes, mm-hmm. and um, really interesting. We had a discussion with him here with several of our workers uh, when he wrote his first manuscript. It was going over his first manuscript, um, watching and waiting, because he, mm-hmm. he, he was writing as a homosexual Christian who was faithful to the Bible's teaching on on homosexual practice and didn't know he didn't practice it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was a very um, courageous book to write. Mm-hmm. And several of us, he asked if he, if we could, he had sent me the manuscript and then he asked if we could have a discussion before he published it. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting because, in fact, one of the people who was part of the discussion was Danny Burbeck, mm-hmm. who many of us know here, mm-hmm. involved in a lot of school. And he made the criticism um, to Wes that you mustn't write as if homosexuals are uniquely lonely. Um, mm-hmm. as, if, as if, you know, as a homosexual, you're the only one that knows real loneliness, um, which was a bit of a danger in the first manuscript. And, and Dan made the point, loneliness is a, is a, is a human problem. Um, mm-hmm. There probably no people more lonely than people in a bad marriage, for example, mm-hmm. in a bad heterosexual marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, that... You know that it's and, it, and it's easy for any any of us, whatever you know, whether we're single, whether we're gay, whether we're um, in a bad marriage, whether whatever state we're in, mm-hmm. to think I am I am uniquely lonely. Yeah. And it was a really good it was a really good um, point. I think that Danny it was very helpful, and I think it, it helped. Wet, I mean, West made mm-hmm. changes in the manuscript, mm-hmm. um, and I think and then his book on spiritual friendship, which yeah. you mentioned, was very much. Or came out, came as the next step of talking mm-hmm. about okay, for people who who don't fit in the all too often sadly sort of Christian script of you, know, you have marriage is the be all and end all, mm-hmm. you know that's the only place for deep intimate relationships, which is extremely hard for gay people mm-hmm. to deal with, but it's extremely hard for lots of people, mm-hmm. um, single people in general. It's it's not actually the Bible teaches, um, mm-hmm. and it's it's you know it can make people a lot more lonely than they need to be. Right, yeah. This, this thing of friendship, um, mm-hmm. this, this uh, book about spiritual friendship, Yeah. you know, coming out of that. But I just think that was really, um, that's a really good thing to, to realize. It's a, loneliness is a very human quality that probably most people at some point in their lives experience. Yeah. And what their state, their state is. And, but a lot of what, We've talked about tonight the examples we've given are people who have chosen against loneliness by reaching out yeah. to other people. Realizing maybe maybe this person is lonely. Maybe I can can draw this right. person out of their loneliness. Yeah, I think that is one of the like one part of the insidious nature of loneliness is that it's so easy to get trapped in thinking I'm alone and feeling alone. Mm-hmm. And then there's nowhere to go. Um, because there's also a great, like, because if ever, no one else is lonely, then there's a lot of shame associated with right. feeling lonely. Um, because there must be something wrong with me, uh, because nobody would like me. <laughs> Obviously, no one likes me. Everyone hates me. I'm going to go eat worms, right? Like, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you don't know that reference, that's okay. It's, it's a song. Um, <laughs> and then you can, like, then you're stuck, right? And the, the key is to, is to, how do we break out of that? And um, yeah, Amanda, did you have something you wanted to say? Or it's 
It wasn't really important. It was just, it was more connected to what her conversation was about, just mm-hmm. feeling connected to a yeah. book. And I, it made me think of other art forms and mm-hmm. like how we're all made in God's image. So, I mean, sometimes like I'll hear a piece of music and I feel connected to it because it strikes me a particular way. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. think it's because of the emotional connection, not because like I know the composer or I know the author or mm-hmm. whatever. It's more what they're saying striking me in the moment. Mm-hmm. It's similar to the Bible, but it's not obviously like interacting with me like the Holy Spirit. But maybe God is using it in mm-hmm. my life. And so like, yeah, and that's and that's what Lewis is saying in the appreciation of the arts. That's one of the ways that we heal our soul's provincialism and and loneliness. Um, and I think that that could be true for any arts, and I think it'll take take some work of the imagination to figure out what what how does that work, where is that happening? Um, so I will leave you all with that homework. <laughs> um,